I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode, the Trade Guys discuss how COVID-19 has disrupted supply chains from veggie burgers and toilet paper to cars. Plus, we'll unpack how the pandemic may change the discussion about trade and security. And we'll break down the latest exchange of trade threats between the U.S. and China. Stay tuned for all that and much more on this episode of the Trade Guys. All right, Trey, guys, we're still home. We're still in Bethesda. It's week, I don't even know what. Scott, it's maybe like week eight? This is, I believe, week eight, yes. Needless to say, you know, the trade guys soldier on, but there's a lot of issues to talk about, so we have to soldier on. And Bill, I think you had something you wanted to say about last week's episode. Well, I have to, I'm embarrassed to say, I have to make a slight correction. Last week, we were talking about food. Uh, and it was mostly by, about meat, but I think at one point we talked a little bit about cheese. Uh, and I mentioned that one of the, the problems that is always happening when panic is, is uh, uh, ensuing is that people start saying, let's make everything at home and let's consume everything at home. And I mentioned that the, some of the French had launched this campaign to make sure that French people only ate food that was produced in France. Uh, which I uh, suggested might make the cheesemakers happy, but a lot of other people unhappy. I've now discovered that the cheesemakers are not happy, and they're not happy because they have a 5,000-ton surplus of cheese that is threatening to spoil because there are not enough French eating their Roquefort or their Chem... This is French cheesemakers, right? Mon Dieu! Yes, so the cheesemakers are not happy. They are unhappy because the French are not eating enough (laughs) cheese, uh, and I think we have an obligation here to help them out. So, Uh, you know, at least cheeseburgers. I mean, that would help out two industries at once. Well, you could eat cheeseburgers, except there's no meat available. And Wendy's ran out yesterday. What about cheese veggie burgers? Is that... uh, Okay, so there's a problem with that. Cheese veggie burgers are great, but veggie burgers are, like, Scott, correct me if I'm wrong, maybe four times as expensive as as meat burgers? Yeah, they're a premium price. Now, it, it turns out yesterday... Uh, Beyond Meat, which is the company that makes these uh, impossible burgers, as they're called. Founded uh, by a Sidwell Friends school graduate, I might add, where there my you go. children go to school. Yep. Well, they reported very strong earnings. Uh, yeah. It is a, a priced at a premium to uh, uh, ground beef, uh, certainly, and to even even higher grades of ground beef. And also, it doesn't really save you much in terms of calories. It's not necessarily healthier than ground beef. So, but it, it, it does at least have the taste, which is what's made it successful. And it's not meat. If you're a vegetarian, it's not meat. Is it vegan or just vegetarian? No, just vegetarian, as I understand it. Because a cheese impossible burger would uh, deter the vegans. Yes. Sure. But I'll tell you one thing as hard as meat is to find, Beyond Burgers and tofu and things like that are really, really hard to find. My middle son, who is a strapping wide receiver in high school, has been a vegetarian since he was in second grade. And he's a great chef. And he cooks a lot of tofu and a lot of Beyond Burgers and things like that. And, you know, man, it's hard. They're they're flying off the shelves. Well, and this is all of a part with the increased demand of retail grocery because of the decline in eating out. Okay, and so 
So once again, it's the two supply chains, the, the restaurant and commercial supply chain is underutilized in terms of demand. When that demand fell into the retail grocery chain and eating at home, which is still much higher than it was a year ago or before we all decided to stay home. We keep talking about how supply chains are disrupted. And we know that. And we know the re that's the reason. We don't actually have a food shortage. In fact, we have a food surplus. But it's our supply chains that are disrupted, right? Yes. And I think this is what uh, Joe Glauber reinforced last week. In the United States, there's really not a risk of food insecurity per se or a shortage of food. There will be uh, difficult availability of certain cuts of certain meats, and there will be uh, probably higher prices. Uh, as a result of the increased demand. Uh, but, but in terms of a pure shortage or people actually, there being less protein available overall, I, I don't think we're at risk. And I, I think Joe made the pretty strong case. But we're being limited into what we can buy, you know, Costco and Kroger's and so on. That's true. There are certain retailers who have, who have chosen to put limits on. I think what they want to do is prevent hoarding. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so the limits, uh, are not because the stores don't have su sufficient supply. It's that they want to avoid what happened in week one or two with toilet paper. Which still seems to be going on. I mean, like, I just saw a, an article this morning in USA Today about how, you know, your favorite brands of toilet paper are coming back and here's where you can get them. Well, as soon as you go to the links, of course, they're sold out again. What's happening with all this, Bill? I was just going to say our, our little neighborhood market has toilet paper, but you're limited to one roll. And there's this big stack of... Single rolls there that they've got Single somehow. Rolls, yeah. I'm baffled by toilet paper, frankly. This has been eight weeks and uh, no change that I can well, see. Well, one of the things that makes toilet paper unique and, and, and often out of stock in our current situations, like keep in mind, the baseline scenario is you have a commercial distribution network for offices and restaurants, right. and you have a, a retail distribution network. Different manufacturers. So, so you have the Georgia Pacific, which is the key distributor to the offices and Procter and Gamble, Kimberly and Clark and others, key distributors to the, to the retail side. So this chain is hard to unite. That's one. But two, think of how much space it takes to store toilet paper. So how much space can the back of your giant devote to stocking? And the answer is not very much in terms of weak supplies. So they had this planned out in both in their warehouses and in on store shelves and in the back room. But because it's an inexpensive item that takes up a lot of volume, it's very hard to build supplies. So the problem starts with increased demand in the retail chain and no way to get the commercial supplies to retail because how, how different the two production networks are. And then it, it's compounded by the fact that this is a very bulky product. And so uh, it's one of the reasons there were almost never any sales on toilet paper before that, because stores just couldn't hold enough. Uh, it's a huge, it's hugely bulky product. So bottom line, if you've got the Charmin, squeeze it and hold on to it. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> People are developing strategies. People will figure it out. But uh, And it's not that they're not making more. So <laughs> Do you think these things are going to even out and adjust? Anytime soon, guys? Well, it depends how long we stay at this. But I, th I certainly think people, uh, that companies will learn, they'll adapt, they'll change their production cycles and all those kinds of things. The thing to think about is we disrupted these supply chains with zero planning. All right. In the middle of March, we decided all restaurants were going to close. It's as if part of the economy went to the emergency room and the doctors placed it in an induced coma. 
And then we started picking up the pieces. Then yeah. they started the rest of the works. So I think one of those things, had we planned this, we'd have a lot different look, but we didn't. Uh, and so everybody from retailers to manufacturers to, to suppliers of raw materials are having to adapt to this problem. And it just takes time. Does this change our outlook on trade policy, this you know, shortages or supply chain disruptions because of this pandemic? Are, are we going to have to, every trade policy discussion we have going forward, are we going to have to somehow factor this in? I think it's going to have an impact on the concept of critical infrastructure security. And we, we've talked a little bit about this before. I mean, there are people who believe, basically believe in autarky. You know, everything should be made here and it's the only way to be safe. Most people who look at the way the economy works understand that's really impossible. You can't make everything in, uh, you need in one country. But uh, what's going on right now, I think, is some reevaluation and, and realization that there are some things that we probably need to have at least backup plans for. Medical equipment has been the one that's been most debated, pharmaceuticals and medical equipment. And we really haven't had a lot of backup plans for that. And the newest one, which I think we'll talk about a little bit today, is is the uh, electrical infrastructure uh, and power generating infrastructure, and because there are concern, security concerns about that. And that, that's where this gets complicated, because it's, an, it's this intersection of, of economics and security where we have not drawn very many lines in the past. We've uh, tended to uh, focus on uh, economics and efficiency. Globalization really is a, a drive for efficiency. And people are now beginning to think that that comes with some uh, risks. And the risk in, in some areas is that we make ourselves vulnerable on the security side. And I think you're going to see more of a public debate in, in the near term about what really constitutes a security slash safety issue for you, for us. What do we need to be concerned about? We probably don't need to be concerned that much about toilet paper, despite its popularity. We ought to worry about food, although that's not really a, a shortage issue. Uh, medical equipment, yes. Uh, pharmaceuticals, yes. And then maybe other things. Uh, we'll see. Bill's right that there's a change in perspective here. And and look, crises always change outlook. Okay, and that, that's every crisis does that. So this one will be no different. And there will be a change in our tolerance for error in when it comes to what's a national security matter and what are essential products. And we're going to have to sort through that. In the specific case of, of the power grid, as has been in the news this week, and electric comp electrical components in the power grid, this is one where I'm inclined to see it as separate from this reevaluation. Because this is a recommendation made by the career officials and experts in this field within the government who are basically saying this is this is a problem. And usually when when the career people say something's a problem, they've got the facts to back it up. They know things that, while they don't talk about it, are important to know. So I'm inclined to see that at least that part as somewhat more routine and and quite acceptable and separate from the this broader notion of what are these essential products that we have to make ourselves, which is going to be a long, drawn-out debate. The sad thing about this, though, is that this is not new. This is a debate that's been going on for a very long time, and I think uh, multiple administrations can be faulted for not not doing enough about it. Uh, when I was in the government, which is in the Clinton administration, uh, this was a big issue uh, in the 90s, critical infrastructure uh, and the security thereof uh, and the adequacy thereof 
was a big issue. And it was for, there were um, different kinds of concerns, natural disasters, not just infiltration or, or you know, cybersecurity or attack. But there were, there were a lot of reasons why people needed to be worried about a variety of, of critical infrastructure, both software and hardware. And uh, the the White House, via somebody whose name you'll remember, Richard Clark, who was the president's sort of anti-terrorism and security advisor uh, for a good while, uh, set up uh, what we called a critical infrastructure uh, assurance office, otherwise known as CHOW. I take credit for the acronym. And its function was to identify security gaps in government infrastructure and to make sure that we plugged them so that we weren't caught short. Uh, and the sad thing about that is that we, while we started that in the 90s, more than 20 years later, not an awful lot has happened. Uh, we have the same vulnerabilities. We spent lots of money. There's been lots of studies. And, uh, you know, we, we are, we are still vulnerable, not only to attack, but simply to, to exogenous events. I mean, one of the things that the, the office did, which I thought was fascinating, was they went around to different federal agencies and studied them and figured out where their weak points were. Uh, and then they told them where their weak points were. And, uh, it was then up to them to decide what to do about it. And the pilot program was at the Commerce Department, and they found, I think, something like 230 vulnerabilities. So tell me about what some of the vulnerabilities are. Is it that we're importing steel from Russia and China, and it's causing grid vulnerabilities? Well, it wasn't like that at all. They, they were things that you'd never think about. Uh, the, the one, that, the classic one, was, you know, the National Hurricane Center is located in Miami, which kind of makes sense. That's a lot of sure. hurricanes go that way. It's a heavily protected building. Uh, it's got a lot of defenses around it to make sure that it's hurricane proof. What nobody had paid any attention to the fact that the National Hurricane Center in Miami at, at that time, this may, it may be different now, but at the time, it got all of its data and information from a computer facility in Prince George's County, Maryland, which was completely unprotected. So the National Hurricane Center in Miami would survive anything you were going to throw at it. But uh, if you pulled the plug in Prince George's County, it was going to be blind. And nobody had put two and two together to figure that out. There was uh, likewise, uh, there's uh, an atomic clock, which is basically the clock that most American facilities where precision matters, they set their time to that clock so that everybody is operating right down to the second accurately. The New York Stock Exchange, for example, sets its uh, timing by the atomic clock. The atomic clock is at a lab in um, Colorado, and it keeps ostensibly perfect time. There's a little bit of a debate about that, but we're talking about, you know, nanoseconds over years. We're not talking about, you know, what the grandfather clock in your living room might do. But it turns out that the clock, uh, in turn, at the time anyway, was sending out its signal so other people could pick it up and, and you know, and con conform to it. They were sending out their signal f over this FM radio station in Colorado that was vulnerable to regular disruption and power failures. So the people that relied on the clock for accuracy never thought that it was only as accurate as the FM radio station that they were tuning in on in order to download the signal. So these things by now are, I think, are hope, uh, I hope are fixed. But those are the kinds well, of things that we came up with at the time that people don't even think but, about. But it's probably getting more complicated if you think about it. Oh, yeah. There's more and more acquisition and, and usage of networks. So networks themselves are, are growing in their complexity. And at the same time, goods production was globalized at the component level. So more and more components are coming from lots of places 
not necessarily a single source. So the world that needs to be looked at carefully by security people is getting more complex in, in both both manners. And these are textbook cases of what we've discussed, I think, last week, which is that you know, if, if one piece of the supply chain is missing, the whole thing goes down. Uh, and that's what, uh, you know, that's what has come up in this, this question about reopening Mexican auto parts plants. You know, the auto companies would like to see some of those plants reopened. The Mexican government is resisting for, because of, uh, the virus. Uh, they want to keep, uh, plants closed just as we've closed them here. The problem for the car companies is that, that, you know, if you've got, one critical parts manufacturer that's closed, your whole supply chain collapses and it has to wait for everybody else to, you know, it has to wait to start up until all the pieces are there. That's why what you're going to see, I think, is a drive to uh, simplify and localize supply chains so you can deal with that kind of problem. Well, let's talk about the Mexico issue right now. Are concerns about Mexico's ability to start production alongside the United States and Canada proof that the U.S. should reshore automobile manufacturing? Well, I think it's just the contrary. Look, uh, what you have is a difference in infection timing. Okay, what happened is coronavirus arrived earlier in the United States, particularly the areas of auto production in the United States, than it did in Mexico. And so all all the infection curves look pretty much alike. I mean, the height of the curve can vary. But the duration of the of the infections has been pretty similar everywhere. It's all matter when you get started. And Mexico started late. So that's that's the moment here. Now, I, I haven't looked at auto inventories in a while, but the inventories were very large at the time and demand is still low. So there's the, the overall problem with the with the economy is the absence of aggregate demand. So I, I understand why the auto industry wants to restart. It's industries as complicated as, as uh, auto fabrication and, and assembly can't be turned on a dime. They'll have to start slowly. They'll ramp up. And so I understand they're trying to, to plan for production that won't fully, fully get to maximum output for a little while. But what you really do have here is the, the virus itself has created a stagger in the availability of the assets that produce the products. So what can they do to compensate? Well, I, in this case, I think the the low demand will 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 probably save the industry. I mean, you've got enough inventory that's already as, assembled. You know, usually about seventy or eighty days of inventory of finished automobiles available for consumers. At the moment, consumers are buying fewer autos, so I think that that will balance it out. They're just going to have to manage through this. I mean, this is an unusual effect, uh, as 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 I've said before. I think Bill said it too. In the case of a typical disruption, uh, which is an earthquake, a fire, uh, floods, uh, whatever, uh, hurricanes, a distributed production network is a, is a benefit, but there are risks along the chain. And in this case, because everybody's getting the virus, it's 184 countries now or whatever the total number is, but they all got it on different timings. We're just kind of lived through the stagger. It's a problem of engineering more than a problem of failures by any individual. Let's talk about China. President Trump said during a virtual town hall from the Lincoln Memorial in Washington on Sunday that China's President Xi Jinping had only agreed to the deal because that Washington had imposed tariffs, which at a minimum are the greatest negotiating tool, he said, that we have ever devised that we never use. What do you guys think about that? I think the threat on phase one was entirely predictable. You knew the rhetoric was going to escalate. Both parties have come to the conclusion that's correct 
that China is going to be a big issue in the campaign. Both parties are going to accuse the other of being soft on China. Uh, both parties have a good argument, uh, frankly, against the other. And uh, you could see this coming uh, a mile away from Trump. He can't sit still. He needs to escalate the rhetoric. So in the absence of another success, like they bought, you know, they met their entire purchase commitment in the first three months of the year, which hasn't happened, or, you know, agreement on phase two, which hasn't happened, you knew he was going to come back with some new threat. And here it is, you know, and uh, will he carry it out? Uh, I doubt it. But, you know, he'll keep the rhetoric flowing because that uh, keeps the issue alive. It distracts the public and uh, gives him a chance to to act strong. Well, you know, it's an interesting moment because there appears to be a pretty, I don't, I don't know if it's choreographed, but there's a good cop, bad cop routine going on with different parts of the administration. Certainly, Secretary of State Pompeo is being very tough in his rhetoric on China and the actions not taken or taken when the virus outbreak began. So there, there's real toughness from the Secretary of State. Uh, there, there was, was the toughness we'd expect from the president when asked about the tariffs and about the phase one agreement. And this has not gone unnoticed by the Chinese. Who oh, no. Just this week, have, when their national holiday ended, have been firing back with, you know, they're not pulling any punches. Yeah. Chinese foreign ministry has escalated their rhetoric as well. At the same time, you have the Treasury Secretary, uh, Secretary Mnuchin, you know, trying to smooth things over and, and being less hostile. So uh, first, that's not unheard of by this administration or any other. Second, I point out that if you go back to the heart, the heart of the analogy, good cop, bad cop, both those police officers have the same objective. They're trying to solve the crime. <laughs> okay. And sometimes modulated messages actually are, uh, are, have the same objective. So we'll have to watch this play out. On top of that, you've got a president who thinks that, that uncertainty and confusion is good. Uh, yes. He wants to keep people guessing because he thinks it gives him more, more leverage. So I would expect the mixed messaging to continue indefinitely. Well, do you expect him to really continue to punish China? No, he'll, he'll say it, though. I mean, it'll be part of the rhetoric. And uh, I, I think Bill's right. I think we're going to have a lot, a very high amount of noise for a very quiet signal. So you guys think that both President Trump and Joe Biden, because of politics, are going to try to prove themselves to be one tougher than the other on China. There will be a lot of rhetoric, but very little action on the part of the president. Yeah, and that's my view anyway. I mean, the idea is that they are allegedly kicking around to, quote, punish, unquote, China, uh, are absurd. You know, uh, repudiating the debt. I mean, I, it's, it's, it's a fair point that Trump has a lot of experience with not paying debts. But, you know, he doesn't he you don't want him to turn the United States into a deadbeat, which is what that would do. It would cause every uh, investor in the world to pull out of treasuries. Interest rates would spike and the economy would tank farther than it already has. So, you know, let them be, take away their sovereign immunity. Let them be sued. That would have the same effect on on uh, enormous chilling effect on foreign investment. I mean, he, these proposals are so incredibly stupid that they just don't have any credibility. I don't see him adding to tariffs either. Uh, because Look, it's an election year, all right? And, you see the and politics has yes. taken over. And uh, look, nobody wants to come in first runner-up in the contest of whose stuff is on China. You know, you, you want the crown in this one. So, yeah, there'll be competition. All right. So we're in, we're in for a, a China battle royale 
for the next several months. At and least the rhetoric, yes. At least the rhetoric. All right. So, but but how is China going to take this? Do, I mean, they they obviously know that this is election season here, but they tend to take negative criticism like this and posturing on the world stage uh, not too well. They always react. They react verbally, uh, and they've been doing that consistently. If there is actual action, you can safely predict they'll retaliate in kind. They almost always do that. Uh, they're doing one new thing, and, and there's one thing that they won't do. The thing they won't do is things that will hurt themselves. They're very, very good at figuring out what will harm them uh, and avoiding that. So tr- retaliation will be carefully constructed to hurt us and avoid harming any Chinese uh, manufacturers if they can. The new thing is a very aggressive global outreach. They're not just hitting back at the Americans. They're hitting back at the French. They're hitting back at the Germans. They're hitting back at the British. They're hitting back at anybody who questions uh, their handling of the virus. And anybody that suggests that uh, they withheld information or downplayed it, uh, downplayed the seriousness of it or were not transparent, this is obviously a point of great sensitivity for them, which is kind of interesting. Isn't everybody suggesting that? Yes. And aren't they? Yes. That's why they're so busy. So everybody is suggesting that there's some real evidence that points to that. And where does that leave them? Are they a pariah state? Are they going to be able to do business in the United States and in Europe and in in the Pacific Rim countries? Are they going to be able to send their students abroad? Are they going to be able to travel freely in the world? Like what what do you guys see for them in the next couple of years? Look, at the minimum, there's there's there is I think substantial reputation damage. And much like personal reputations, the reputation of China as a as a supplier or a trading partner, whatever it might be, has taken a big hit. Uh, their reputations are very difficult to build and they're easy to destroy. So they're going to have to consider that. Uh, at the same time, for me, the biggest concern remains a miscalculation on someone's part, whether it's a Chinese official or a Chinese ministry or an American official, American ministry, or some of their allies. When tensions are, are raised, there's always a chance somebody somebody miscalculates, and that uh, that would lead to something we, we don't want. But there's certainly the reputational harm is going to take a while to recover from, and uh, uh, I'd hate to predict the outcome at this point. This is not new. They have a tendency to use their economic clout uh, with a pretty heavy hand, particularly with developing countries, but they've done this to the Germans. And the debate in Germany actually is very interesting about this because I think uh, it, it's the same debate that we had in this country several years ago. Business and, and politicians getting more and more exasperated with the Chinese who have been increasingly making clear that they're, if somebody in Germany says something they don't like, they'll come in and say, well, we're not going to buy your products anymore. It's what they did to the Norwegians. You know, when the Norwegians gave the peace prize to the Chinese dissident, they stopped buying Norwegian salmon, uh, which was a big deal in Norway. And this is the way the Chinese uh, work. It doesn't win them any friends. It's very heavy handed, but uh, they don't seem to have figured that out. Uh, And it's a, it's a, time-honored tactic there, and they persist with it. I think it grows. It's historical. I mean, their their worldview has always been, it's, it's the Middle Kingdom worldview. They're the center of everything. They're bigger than everybody else, and everybody else should uh, go along with what they want. 
And they're getting pushback, and they get pushback from smaller countries too. They get a lot of pushback from Vietnam, interestingly. Our friends, the, the friends and allies, the Australians, uh, have been have stood strong here and basically told them to pound sand. So there are a variety of responses. Yeah, a real dilemma, incidentally, because the Australians have done so much over the last few years to make their uh, not necessarily deliberately, but to make their economy really dependent on trade with China. There's a lot at stake there. There certainly is. Well, there's a lot more to talk about this week and next week. And we will be back, undoubtedly, from our bunkers in Bethesda next week. Trade Guys, thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Thank Stay you. safe. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. Thank you, Trade Guys. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.